Chapters 8 and 9 of The Sinking of the Titanic and Great Sea Disasters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Sinking of the Titanic and Great Sea Disasters. Edited by Logan Marshall. Chapter 8. The Call for Help Heard. The value of the wireless. Other ships alter their course. Rescuers on the way. We have struck an iceberg. Badly damaged. Rush aid. Steward and landward, J.G. Phillips, the Titanic's wireless man, had hurled the appeal for help. By fits and starts, for the wireless was working unevenly and blurringly, Phillips reached out to the world, crying the Titanic's peril. A word or two, scattered phrases, now and then a connected sentence made up the message that sent a thrill of apprehension for a thousand miles east west and south of the doomed liner the early despatches from st john's cape race and montreal told graphic tales of the race to reach the titanic the wireless appeals for help the interruption of the calls then what appeared to be a successful conclusion of the race when the virginian was reported as having reached the giant liner many lines hear the call other rushing liners besides the virginian heard the call and became on the instant something more than cargo carriers and passenger greyhounds the big baltic two hundred miles to the eastward and westbound turned again to save life as she did when her sister of the white star fleet the republic was cut down in a fog in january 1909 the titanic's mate the olympic the mightiest of the seagoers, save the Titanic herself, turned in her tracks. All along the northern lane, the miracle of the wireless worked for the distressed and sinking White Star ship. The Hamburg-American Cincinnati, the Parisian from Glasgow, the North German Lloyd Prince Frederick Wilhelm, the Hamburg-American liners Prince Adalbert and America, all heard the CQD and the rapid, condensed explanation of what had happened. Virginian in desperate haste. But the Virginian was nearest, barely 170 miles away, and was the first to know of the Titanic's danger. She went about and headed under forced drought for the spot indicated in one of the last of Phillips' messages, latitude 41.46 north, and longitude 50.14 west. She is a fast ship, the Allen liner, and her wireless has told the story of how she stretched through the night to get up to the Titanic in time. There was need for all the power of her engines and all the experience and skill of her captain. The final fluttering marconograms that were released from the Titanic made it certain that the great ship with 2,340 souls aboard, was filling in a desperate peril. Further out at sea was the Cunarder, Carpathia, which left New York for the Mediterranean on April 13th. Round she went and plunged back westward to take a hand in saving life. And the third steamship, within short sailing of the Titanic, was the Allen Liner Parisian, away to the eastward, on her way from Glasgow to Halifax while they sped in the night with all the drive that steam could give them the titanic's call reached to cape race and startled the operator there heard at midnight a message which quickly reached new york 
have struck an iceberg. We are badly damaged. Titanic latitude, 41.46 north, 50.14 west. Cape Race threw the appeal broadcast wherever his apparatus could carry. Then for hours, while the world waited for a crumb of news as to the safety of the great ship's people, not one thing more was known save that she was drifting, brokeous and helpless, and alone in the midst of a waste of ice. And it was not until 17 hours after the Titanic had sunk that the words came out of the air as to her fate. There was a confusion and tangle of messages, a jumble of rumors. Good tidings were trodden upon by evil, and no man knew clearly what was taking place in that stretch of waters where the giant icebergs were making a mock of all that the world knew best in shipbuilding. Titanic sent out no more news. It was at 12.17 a.m., while the Virginian was still plunging eastward, that all communication from the Titanic ceased. The Virginian's operator, with the Virginian's captain at his elbow, fed the air with blue flashes in a desperate effort to know what was happening to the crippled liner, but no message came back. The last word from the Titanic was that she was sinking. Then the sparking became fainter. The call was dying to nothing. The Virginian's operator labored over a blur of signals. It was hopeless, so the Allen ship strove on, fearing that the worst had happened. It was this ominous silence that so alarmed the other vessels hurrying to the Titanic and that caused so much suspense here. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 In the Drifting Lifeboats Sorrow and Suffering The survivors see the Titanic go down with their loved ones on board. A night of agonizing suspense. Women help to row. Help arrives. Picking up the lifeboats. Sixteen boats were in the procession which entered on the terrible hours of rowing, drifting, and suspense. Women wept for lost husbands and sons. Sailors sobbed for the ship which had been their pride. Men choked back tears and sought to comfort the widowed. Perhaps, they said, other boats might have put off in another direction. They strove, though none too sure themselves, to convince the women of the certainty that a rescue ship would appear. In the distance, the Titanic looked an enormous length, her great bulk outlined in black against the starry sky, every porthole and saloon blazing with light. It was impossible to think anything could be wrong with such a leviathan, were it not for the ominous tilt downward in the bows, where the water was now up to the lowest row of portholes, Presently, about 2 a.m., as near as can be determined, those in the lifeboats observed her settling very rapidly, with the bows and the bridge completely under water, and concluded it was now only a question of minutes before she went. So it proved. She slowly tilted straight on end with the stern vertically upwards, and as she did, the lights in the cabins and saloons, which until then had not flickered for a moment, died out came on again for a single flash, and finally went all together. At the same time, the machinery roared down through the vessel with a rattle and a groaning that could be heard for miles, the weirdest sound, surely, that could be heard in the middle of the ocean, a thousand miles away from land. But this was not yet quite the end. Titanic stood upright. To the amazement of the awed watchers in the lifeboats, 
the doomed vessel remained in that upright position for a time estimated at five minutes some in the boat say less but it was certainly some minutes that at least one hundred fifty feet of the titanic towered up above the level of the sea and loomed black against the sky saw last a big ship then with a quiet slanting dive she disappeared beneath the waters and the eyes of the helpless spectators had looked for the last time upon the gigantic vessel on which they had set out from southampton and there was left to the survivors only the gently heaving sea the lifeboats filled with men and women in every conceivable condition of dress and undress above the perfect sky of brilliant stars with not a cloud all tempered with a bitter cold that made each man and woman long to be one of the crew who toiled away with the oars and kept themselves warm thereby a curious deadening bitter cold unlike anything they had felt before one long moan and then with all these there fell on the ear the most appalling noise that a human being has ever listened to the cries of hundreds of fellow beings struggling in the icy cold water crying out for help with a cry that could not be answered third officer herbert john pitman in charge of one of the boats described this cry of agony in his testimony before the senatorial investigating committee under the questioning of senator smith i heard no cries of distress until after the ship went down he said how far away were the cries from your lifeboat several hundred yards probably some of them describe the screams don't sir please i'd rather not talk about it i'm sorry to press it but what was it like were the screams spasmodic it was one long continuous moan the witness said the moans and cries continued an hour those in the lifeboats longed to return and pick up some of the poor drowning souls but they feared this would mean swamping the boats and a further loss of life some of the men tried to sing to keep the women from hearing the cries and rowed hard to get away from the scene of the wreck but the memory of those sounds will be one of the things the rescued will find it hard to forget the waiting sufferers kept a lookout for lights and several times it was shouted that steamers lights were seen but they turned out to either be a light from another boat or a star low down on the horizon it was hard to keep up hope women tried to commit suicide let me go back i want to go back to my husband i'll jump from the boat if you don't cried an agonized voice in one lifeboat you can do no good by going back other lives will be lost if you try it try to calm yourself for the sake of the living it may be that your husband will be picked up somewhere by one of the fishing boats the woman who pleaded to go back according to mrs vera dick of calgary canada later tried to throw herself from the lifeboat mrs dick describing the scenes in the lifeboats said there were half a dozen women in that one boat who tried to commit suicide when they realized that the titanic had gone down even in canada where we have such clear nights said mrs dick i have never seen such a clear sky the stars were very bright and we could see the titanic plainly like a great hotel on the water floor after floor of the lights went out as we watched it was horrible horrible i can't bear to think about it from the distance as we rode away we could hear the band playing nearer my god to thee 
Among the lifeboats themselves, however, there were scenes just as terrible, perhaps, but to me nothing could outdo the tragic grandeur with which the Titanic went to its death. To realize it, you would have to see the Titanic as I saw it the day we set sail, with the flags flying and the band playing. Everybody on board was laughing and talking about the Titanic being the biggest and most luxurious boat on the ocean and being unsinkable. To think of it then, and to think of it standing out there in the night, wounded to death, and gasping for life, is almost too big for the imagination. Scantily clad women in lifeboats. The women on our boat were in nightgowns and bare feet, some of them, and the wealthiest women mingled with the poorest immigrants. One immigrant woman kept shouting, My God, my poor father! He put me in this boat and would not save himself. Oh, why didn't I die? Why didn't I die? Why can't I die now? We had to restrain her, else she would have jumped overboard. It was simply awful. Some of the men apparently had said they could row just to get into the boats. We paid no attention to cowardice, however. We were all busy with our own troubles. My heart simply bled for the women who were separated from their husbands. The night was frightfully cold, although clear. We had to huddle together to keep warm. Everybody drank sparingly of the water and ate sparingly of the bread. We did not know when we would be saved. Everybody tried to remain cool, except the poor creatures who could think of nothing but their own great loss. Those with the most brains seemed to control themselves best. Philadelphia Women Heroines How Mrs. George D. Widener, whose husband and son perished after kissing her goodbye and helping her into one of the boats, rowed when exhausted seamen were on the verge of collapse, was told by Emily Geiger, maid of Mrs. Widener, who was saved with her. The girl said Mrs. Widener bravely toiled throughout the night and consoled other women who had broken down under the strain. Mrs. William E. Carter and Mrs. John B. Thayer were in the same lifeboat and worked heroically to keep it free from the icy menace. Although Mrs. Thayer's husband remained aboard the Titanic and sank with it, and although she had no knowledge of the safety of her son until they met, hours later, aboard the Carpathia, Mrs. Thayer bravely labored at the oars throughout the night. In telling of her experience, Mrs. Carter said, when I went over the side with my children and got in the boat, there were no seamen in it. Then came a few men, but there were oars with no one to use them. The boat had been filled with passengers, and there was nothing else for me to do but take an oar. We could see now that the time of the ship had come. She was sinking, and we were warned by cries from the men above to pull away from the ship quickly. Mrs. Thayer, wife of the vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, was in my boat and she too took an oar. It was cold, and we had no time to clothe ourselves with warm overcoats. The rowing warmed me. We started to pull away from the ship. We could see the dim outlines of the decks above, but we could not recognize anybody. Many Women Rowing Mrs. William R. Bucknell's account of the part women played in the rowing is as follows. There were thirty-five persons in the boat in which the captain placed me. Three of these were ordinary seamen, supposed to manage the boat, and a steward. 
one of these men seemed to think that we should not start away from the sinking ship until it could be learned whether the other boats would accommodate the rest of the women he seemed to think that more could be crowded into hours if necessary i would rather go back and go down with the ship than leave under these circumstances he cried the captain shouted to him to obey orders and pull for a little light that could just be discerned miles in the distance i do not know what this little light was it may have been a passing fishing vessel which of course could not know our predicament anyway we never reached it we rowed all night i took an oar and sat beside the countess de Rolts. her maid had an oar and so did mine the air was freezing cold and it was not long before the only man that appeared to know anything about rowing commenced to complain that his hands were freezing a woman back of him handed him a shawl from about her shoulders as we rowed we looked back at the lights of the titanic there was not a sound from her only the lights began to get lower and lower and finally she sank then we heard a muffled explosion and a dull roar caused by the great suction of water there was not a drop of water on our boat the last minute before our boat was launched captain smith threw aboard a bag of bread i took the precaution of taking a good drink of water before we started so i suffered no inconvenience from thirst mrs lucian smith whose husband perished was another heroine it is related by survivors that she took turns at the oars and then when the boat was in danger of sinking stood ready to plug the hole with her finger if the cork stopper became loose in another boat mrs cornell and her sister who had a slight knowledge of rowing took turns at the oar as did other women the boat in which mrs j j brown of denver colorado was saved contained only three men in all and only one rowed he was a half-frozen seaman who was tumbled into the boat at the last minute the woman wrapped him in blankets and set him at an oar to start his blood the second man was too old to be of any use the third was a coward strange to say there was room in this boat for ten other people ten brave men would have received the warmest welcome of their lives if they had been there the coward being a quartermaster and the assigned head of the boat sat in the stern and steered he was terrified and the women had to fight against his pessimism while they tugged at the oars the women sat two at each oar one held the oar in place and the other did the pulling mrs brown coached them and cheered them on she told them that the exercise would keep the chill out of their veins and she spoke hopefully of the likelihood that some vessel would answer the wireless calls over the frightful danger of the situation the spirit of this woman soared the pessimist and the coward sat in his stern seat terrified his tongue loosened with fright he assured them there was no chance in the world he had had fourteen years experience and he knew first they would have to row one and a half miles at least to get out of the sphere of suction if they did not want to go down they would be lost and nobody would ever find them oh we shall be picked up sooner or later said some of the braver ones no said the man there was no bread in the boat no water they would all starve all that big boatload wandering the high seas with nothing to eat perhaps for days don't cried mrs brown keep that to yourself if you feel that way for the sake of these women and children be a man we have a smooth sea and a fighting chance 
be a man but the coward only knew that there was no compass and no chart aboard they sighted what they thought was a fishing smack on the horizon showing dimly in the early dawn the man at the rudder steered toward it and the women bent to their oars again they covered several miles in this way but the smack faded into the distance they could not see it any longer and the coward said that everything was over they rowed back nine weary miles then the coward thought they must stop rowing and lie in the trough of the waves until the carpathia should appear the women tried it for a few moments and felt the cold creeping into their bodies though exhausted from the hard physical labor they thought work was better than freezing row again commanded mrs brown no no don't said the coward we shall freeze cried several of the women together we must row we have rowed all this time we must keep on or freeze when the coward still demurred they told him plainly and once for all that if he persisted in wanting them to stop rowing they were going to throw him overboard and be done with him for good something about the look in the eye of that mississippi bred oars woman who seemed such a force among her fellows told him that he had better capitulate and he did. Countess Rhodes, an expert oarsman. Miss Alice Farnham Leader, a New York physician, escaped from the Titanic on the boat which carried the Countess Rhodes. The Countess is an expert oarswoman, said Dr. Leader, and thoroughly at home on the water. She practically took command of our boat when it was found that the seamen who had been placed at the oars could not row skillfully. Several of the women took their place with the countess at the oars and rowed in turns, while the weak and unskilled stewards sat quietly in one end of the boat. Men could not row. With nothing on but a nightgown, I helped row one of the boats for three hours, said Miss Florence Ware of Bristol, England. In our boat, there were a lot of women, a steward and a fireman none of the men knew anything about managing a small boat so some of the women who were used to boats took charge it was cold and i worked as hard as i could at an oar until we were picked up there was nothing to eat or drink on our boat deaths on the lifeboats the temperature must have been below freezing testified another survivor and neither men nor women in my boat were warmly clothed several of them died the officer in charge of the lifeboat decided it was better to bury the bodies. Soon they were weighted so they would sink and were put overboard. We could also see similar burials taking place from other lifeboats that were all around us. Gamblers were polite. In one boat were two card sharps. With the same cleverness that enabled them to win money on board, they obtained places in the boats with the women. In the boat with the gamblers were women in their nightgowns and women in evening dress. None of the boats were properly equipped with food, but all had enough bread and water to keep the rescued from starving until the expected arrival of help. To the credit of the gamblers who managed to escape, it should be said that they were polite and showed the women every courtesy. All they wanted was to be sure of getting in a boat. That, once accomplished, they reverted to their habitual practice of politeness and suavity. They were even willing to do a little manual labor, refusing to let women do any rowing. The people on that particular boat were a sad group. 
Fathers had kissed their daughters goodbye, and husbands had parted from their wives. The card sharps, however, philosophized wonderfully about the will of the Almighty and how strange his ways. They said that one must be prepared for anything, that good always comes from evil, and that every cloud has a silver lining. Who knows, said one, it may be that everybody on board will be saved. Another added, our duty is to the living. You women owe it to your relatives and friends not to allow this thing to wreck your reason or undermine your health. And they took pains to see that all the women who were on the lifeboat had plenty of covering to keep them from the icy blasts of the night. Help in Sight The survivors were in the lifeboats until about 5.30 a.m. About 3 a.m., faint lights appeared in the sky, and all rejoiced to see what was supposed to be the coming dawn. But after watching for a half an hour and seeing no change in the intensity of light, the disappointed sufferers realized it was the northern lights. Presently, low down on the horizon, they saw a light, which slowly resolved itself into a double light, and they watched eagerly to see if the two lights would separate, and so proved to be only two of the boats or whether these lights would remain together, in which case they should expect them to be the lights of a rescuing steamer. To the inexpressible joy of all, they moved as one. Immediately the boats were swung around and headed for the lights. Someone shouted, Now, boys, sing! And everyone not too weak broke into song with, Row for the shore, boys! Tears came to the eyes of all as they realized that safety was at hand. The song was sung, but it was a very poor imitation of the real thing, for quavering voices make poor songs. A cheer was given next, and that was better. You can keep in tune for a cheer. The Lucky Thirteen Our rescuer showed up rapidly, and as she swung round we saw her cabins all alight, and we knew she must be a large steamer. She was now motionless, and we had to row to her. Just then, day broke, a beautiful quiet dawn with faint pink clouds just above the horizon and a new moon whose crescent just touched the horizon. "'Turn your money over, boys,' said our cheery steersman. "'That is, if you have any with you,' he added. We laughed at him for his superstition at such a time, but he countered very neatly by adding, well, I shall never say again that 13 is an unlucky number. Boat 13 has been the best friend we ever had. Certainly, the 13 superstition is killed forever in the minds of those who escaped from the Titanic in Boat 13. As we neared the Carpathia, we saw in the dawning light what we thought was a full-rigged schooner standing up near her, and presently behind her another, all sails set, and we said, they are fisher boats from the Newfoundland bank and have seen the steamer lying to and are standing by to help. But in another five minutes, the light shone pink on them and we saw they were icebergs towering many feet in the air, huge, glistening masses, deadly white, steel, and peaked in a way that had easily suggested a schooner. We glanced round the horizon and there were others wherever the eye could reach. The steamer we had to reach was surrounded by them, and we had to make a detour to reach her, for between her and us lay another huge berg. A Wonderful Dawn Speaking of the moment when the Carpathia was sighted, Mrs. J. J. Brown, who had cowed the driveling quartermaster, said, 
Then, knowing that we were safe at last, I looked about me. The most wonderful dawn I have ever seen came upon us. I have just returned from Egypt. I have been all over the world, but I have never seen anything like this. First the gray, and then the flood of light. Then the sun came up in a ball of red fire. For the first time, we saw where we were. Near us was open water, but on every side was ice. Ice ten feet high was everywhere, and to the right and left and back and front were icebergs. Some of them were mountain high. This sea of ice was forty miles wide, they told me. We did not wait for the Carpathia to come to us. We rode to it. We were lifted up in a sort of nice little sling that was lowered to us. After that, it was all over. The passengers of the Carpathia were so afraid that we would not have enough room that they gave us practically the whole ship to ourselves. It had been learned that some of the passengers, in fact, all of the women passengers of the Titanic who were rescued, refer to Lady Margaret, as they call Mrs. Brown, as the strength of them all. Transferring the Rescued Officers of the Carpathia report that when they reached the scene of the Titanic's wreck, there were 50 bodies or more floating in the sea. Only one mishap attended the transfer of the rescued from the lifeboats. One large collapsible lifeboat, in which 13 persons were seated, turned turtle just as they were about to save it, and all in it were lost. The Dog Hero not the least among the heroes of the Titanic disaster was Rigel, a big black Newfoundland dog belonging to the first officer who went down with the ship. But for Rigel, the fourth boat picked up might have been run down by the Carpathia. For three hours he swam in the icy water where the Titanic went down, evidently looking for his master, and was instrumental in guiding the boatload of survivors to the gangway of the Carpathia. Jonas Briggs, a seaman aboard the Carpathia, now has Rigel and told the story of the dog's heroism. The Carpathia was moving slowly about looking for boats, rafts, or anything which might be afloat. Exhausted with their efforts, weak from lack of food and exposure to the cutting wind and terror stricken, the men and women in the fourth boat had drifted under the Carpathia's starboard bow. They were dangerously close to the steamship, but too weak to shout a warning loud enough to reach the bridge. The boat might not have been seen were it not for the sharp barking of Rigel, who was swimming ahead of the craft, and valiantly announced his position. The barks attracted the attention of Captain Rostron, and he went to the starboard end of the bridge to see where they came from and saw the boat. He immediately ordered the engine stopped, and the boat came alongside the starboard gangway. Care was taken to get Rigel aboard, but he appeared little affected by his long trip through the ice-cold water. He stood by the rail and barked until Captain Rostron called Briggs and had him take the dog below. A Thrilling Account of Rescue Mr. Wallace Bradford of San Francisco, a passenger aboard the Carpathia, gave the following thrilling account of the rescue of the Titanic's passengers. Since half-past four this morning, I have experienced one of those never-to-be-forgotten circumstances that weighs heavy on my soul, and which shows most awfully what poor things we mortals are. Long before this reaches you, the news will be flashed that the Titanic has gone down, and that our steamer, the Carpathia, caught the wireless message when 75 miles away. And so far, we have picked up 20 boats estimated to contain about 750 people. 
None of us can tell just how many, as they have been hustled to various staterooms and to the dining saloons to be warmed up. I was awakened by unusual noises and imagined that I smelled smoke. I jumped up and looked out of my porthole and saw a huge iceberg looming up like a rock offshore. It was not white, and I was positive that it was a rock, and the thought flashed through my mind. How in the world can we be near a rock when we are four days out from New York in a southerly direction and in mid-ocean? When I got on deck, the first man I encountered told me that the Titanic had gone down and we were rescuing the passengers. The first two boats from the doomed vessel were in sight, making toward us. Neither of them was crowded. This was accounted for later by the fact that it was impossible to get many to leave the steamer, as they would not believe that she was going down. It was a glorious clear morning and a quiet sea. Off to the starboard was a white area of ice plain, from whose even surface rose mammoth forts. Castles and pyramids of solid ice, almost as real as though they had been placed there by the hand of man. Our steamer was hove to about two and a half miles from the edge of this huge iceberg. The Titanic struck about 11.20 p.m. and did not go down until two o'clock. Many of the passengers were in evening dress when they came aboard our ship, and most of these were in a most bedraggled condition. Near me, as I write, is a girl about 18 years old in a fancy dress costume of bright colors, while in another seat nearby is a woman in a white dress trimmed with lace and covered with jaunty blue flowers. As the boats came alongside after the first two, all of them contained a very large proportion of women. In fact, one of the boats had women at the oars, one in particular containing as near as I could estimate about 45 women and only about six men. In this boat, two women were handling one of the oars. All of the engineers went down with the steamer. Four bodies had been brought aboard. One is that of a fireman who is said to have been shot by one of the officers because he refused to obey orders. Soon after I got on deck, I could, with the aid of my glasses, count seven boats headed our way, and they continued to come up to half-past eight o'clock. Some were in sight for a long time and moved very slowly, showing plainly that the oars were being handled by amateurs or by women. No baggage of any kind was brought by the survivors. In fact, the only piece of baggage that reached the Carpathia is from the Titanic, is a small closed trunk about 24 inches square, evidently the property of an Irish female immigrant. While some seemed fully dressed, many of the men having their overcoats and the women's sealskin and other coats, others came just as they had jumped from their berths, clothed in their pajamas and bathrobes. The Sorrow of the Living Of the survivors in general, it may be said that they escaped death and gained life. Life is probably sweet to them as it is to everyone, but what physical and mental torture has been the price of life to those who were brought back to land on the Carpathia, the hours in lifeboats amid the crashing of ice, the days of anguish that have succeeded, the horrors of body and mind still experienced and never to be entirely absent until death affords them its relief. The thought of the nation today is for the living, they need our sympathy, our consolation, more than do the dead. And, perhaps, in the majority of the cases, they need our protecting care as well. End of chapter 9